Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Well, good morning everyone. You're tuned to Community Radio 3CR. Time is just after 7.30 and of course that's time for the 3CR Gardening Show. My name's Pam Vardy and in the studio this morning we have to say a very good morning to Tim Sansom and Tim, your marketing manager out there at Plants Management Australia. I am indeed. Morning Pam. Morning listeners. And um, at least it was a bit lighter for you driving up today. Oh look, I, yeah, I, this, since Daylight Savings has started, finished, or has it started? It started. Yeah. <laughs> um, I found those first couple of days really hard yes. to, to get out of bed. But, yeah. yeah, absolutely, much more light now. And I'm a bit of a morning person, so I'm up and about in the morning. Fair enough. So get out while the sun's low and the garden's looking nice. Yep. And, in fact, this last week has been such a kind of classic Melbourne spring week. Hasn't it? Which we haven't had so far this spring. That's right. You know, we've had some beautiful sunny days. We've had some nice rain. The garden, the soil sort of building up with a bit of moisture. Oh, thank goodness for that rain, Tim. It's yeah. getting so dry. And I, I think us gardeners go on about rain and conditions for gardening a lot. I mean, obviously we do because that's, that's what, our, what our lives are occupied with. But it is such a relief at times when you get some rain. You yes. get, you get, and you can see the plants thanking them. Thinking oh. us, thinking whatever it is. That's right. Uh, for their, for their, for that little bit of drink. And yeah. The, the garden's really lifting up at the moment. Mm. This warmth, nice warm nights, long days, bit of rain. Yep. It's a joy to be in the garden at the moment. It is. It really is. Mm. Yeah, no, it's fantastic. I mean, we've had uh, predictions of, of summer going to be a hot, dry summer. So any rain we can get now yeah. will be very welcome. I think so. I think Getting ahead. I think getting... Getting our water storages with some, some water in them. I mean, we have to be very conscious of the fact that it's going to be a hot summer. Yep. I think that's basically our default position running into, into summers. It is for me now. My, mm. my entire front garden, I don't irrigate at mm. all. I will hand water things to get them established. Uh, but other than that, it has to survive the summer mm. and has to get through. And I live in a climate where we get, so I'm down by the coast, down at Arthur's Seat, uh, and that, that front area has some pretty good soil, so I worked on the soil heavily to start with to, to get that water retention in there, but it's, it, the plants have to stick, stick it themselves. That's you know, right. It's, so it's really about selecting the things that are going to make it through. So at this time of the year, they're all coming out of the ground. I've got a lot of grasses and perennials in that front garden, things like sedums, and so the, I've got some um, calamagrostis, Miscanthus grasses, I've got quite a few euphorbias. All these plants will take the hot sun mm. uh, without much need for attention and still look pretty good through most of the summer. Mm. But I also get this great flush as the, as the things that are coming out of the ground, like the sedums and the grasses, come back after they've been cut back in the winter. So it makes for an exciting change at this time of the oh, year. Absolutely. You get the, the, the spring breezes and things move around. Yep. Um, but yeah, it's, I think it's. I think it's an increasing concern or, cons- uh, or part of our gardening um, method is to think it's not just spring. It's not just what we're looking at right now. This is the, this is the sort of the awakening of the season. Lots of flowers happening, lots of insect activity. But we want to be planning our gardens to make their way through into the warmer months mm. when 
it's hardcore out there. You know, it the, is the hardcore. Sun, that sun gets hot. The, yes. There's a lot of drought, and we have to be conscious of our water consumption. Oh. The thing that's – and I've been in this, this garden where I'm at now for I think it's seven or eight years. We're not on mains water at all. Oh, so okay. So we're on tank water for the entire house yes, supply. Right. So it has forced me to be very conscious of water consumption. Absolutely. So I mean, and we're having to at the end of summer, or even this year, we've had to buy water for the house. Right. Just just so we can shower and wash the dishes. Yep. So that has that that it's a really good test for a garden or a gardener to see if you can make a garden survive in those conditions. There's a challenge I'd put out to people: see if you can garden on a very restricted water supply. Yeah. Imagine that you don't have a mains tap. Imagine that you've got a tank and you're only catching what comes off the roof. It's it's hard work. Oh, absolutely. And, um, yeah, I, I don't think it's going to get easier as the years... No, I, I, but I don't think it's... For me, it's not really a sense of despair. I think it's actually a sense of change. I think it's... Um, I think it's we've just got to alter our, our whole philosophy on gardening. Yeah. We've got to look at plant selection. I think that's, that's really crucial. We've got to garden for the future. Mm. Um, and we're not going to get more rainfall. We've got to stop thinking in terms of European plants that need, you know, buckets yeah. of water. We've really got to look towards um, Mediterranean yeah. plants a lot more. Yeah, and, there's, and there are really exciting selections mm. that, are, that are in that vein. Uh, I think of someone like David Glenn up at Ascot in oh, Central Victoria. Oh, he does an amazing job, doesn't he? And his garden, and, and he quite deliberately has two sections, one section which he cultivates and waters more, which is sort of more, I guess, traditional. That's the kitchen garden where, yep. where you have a lot of flowering, spring flowering bulbs and, um, and a lot of annuals. He's got wallflowers and tulips at the moment. But then he's got, in, and, and I would absolutely recommend anyone go and visit David's garden oh, up definitely. at Lamley's Nursery. Um, his garden is a terrific display of how to drought-proof your garden. Mm. This is the other section, which is behind the hedge on the... On the, I guess it's on the eastern side of his, of the garden, and everything in there survives much as the ones in my garden do, which they are watered to establish. Yep. And then they've got to fight for themselves and got to look good at the same time. He's got a pretty critical eye. Well, David. that's it. Yeah. yeah. I mean, he's got to keep up a display yeah. as well. Year <laughs> round. I yeah. mean, at least in your garden, it doesn't yeah. matter what <laughs> other people think right. because they're not looking at it. No, it's only me. <laughs> it's <Yeah>. only you. <laughs> yeah, but well, David's got people coming through. And making, and making plant choices about what they see in his garden. That's so right. So the influence it, of that garden yes. is, is really, really strong. Yep. Um, and I take my hat off to him because I think he's forging a path towards what the new garden of Australia, southern Australia, the, the Mediterranean parts of Australia will look like. Um, that, that plant palette that he has, mm. um, and there are others that are doing this too, but, but I, I'd say he's an, a, a really good example that people could learn from. Mm. Um, there's... You know, and it will, it will mean um, not so much that you're going to lose the passion for your plants or in your garden. It, it, it means you're going to have a renewed appreciation for a new palette of plants. I, half the challenge for me is finding room for new plants. Yep. So sometimes when a plant dies, it's like, okay, all right, there's a new room for it. It's an opportunity. Yeah, it's an opportunity. Yeah. <laughs> As Stephen always says. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah um, from the point of view of, of your work with PMA, um, how much, when, when some of these new releases come through, how much um, time is being spent on, on considering, um, you know, drought tolerance now? I think that's, it's different between different breeders. So 
I'll, I'll explain a little to the listeners who might not understand what PMA or Plant sure. Management Australia is. So um, PMA represents plant breeders, so people who uh, are plant creators, really. So these are um, very engaged, intelligent and knowledgeable people who take plant material from, and they'll, they'll collect wild seed from all over the world uh, will, or, or take existing plant material and do the process of hybridisation. So here we're, we're dealing with cross-pollination cross of, of plant material within a species or sometimes across species yep. and creating new plants. So they're inventors, really. Um, so the, and when you're inventing a plant, and I'm not a breeder myself, but I work with them quite a bit. When you're inventing a plant, you're, you've got a particular mission in mind. So okay. it'll be, what are we trying to achieve? Maybe yes. we're going for shorter flowers. Maybe we're going for um, flowers closer to the foliage. Maybe we're going for a compact form. Maybe we're looking for a, a colour break in the leaf. Or there are all sorts of... I mean, you could... The, the options are myriad. Oh, yes. Um, but increasingly, there is bringing in elements of drought tolerance, uh, bringing in selection for plants that are going to survive in the new, new I guess, the new gardening environment. Mm. And I'd say David's probably one of the, the most uh, forward-thinking of those, looking at plants like he has, he's, got, he's got a big collection of uh, Flomus, the Jerusalem sage, and there are some that he's selecting in there out in the back blocks, um, which, which he's working on uh, to get different forms or get a shorter form or a self-cleaning form so okay. it, so it'll flower and then the flower when, once it's finished it will, doesn't need to be pruned back okay uh, so you can imagine the use of these things that might be something that's great for the home gardener who doesn't have a lot of time but also could be terrific for a mass planting situation yes. on, a, on a roadside yes, for, a, exactly. for, a, you for know, councils, public, councils yes. and public landscapes yes because it's going to reduce their their maintenance bill. Exactly. Uh, the plant's going to live and hold its shape for 10 to 15, 20 years. Mm. Then you've got, they can lock that bit down. Mm. Uh, I'm having, having worked in this industry for 25 years and done ornamental for, for uh, domestic gardens, looking at commercial landscapes uh, and how plants behave, I'm often driving along freeways looking at dead patches, thinking, oh, that plant didn't really work. Yes. Um, what would be a plant that could work there? You yes. know, and something really robust like some of these Jerusalem sages that, that David's working on or others could have would be terrific, terrific yes, impact yes, yes. and not require water, mm. not be particularly fussy about soil. So there's that sort of one breeding niche, if you like. Mm. There are other niches which are colour forms of, you know, particular, like it might just be a potted plant, you know, especially for colour, which, which isn't so much requiring, um, us to have uh, a lower water requirement or it might be a bit more of a fussy plant or need a bit more care, but it's, it has an element. It has, yes. a, has a place in a garden. Like so the elusive blue rose. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> Well, which is yet to happen. It's yet to happen. Yeah. People keep telling me it's getting closer, yeah. but I don't well, know. Give me a call. <laughs> when it there, are, there are some wonderful blue plants out there. there I don't are. know if I need it in a rose, to I, be quite actually, honest. I think... <laughs> I, maybe it shouldn't ever happen. Yeah, I don't know. I'm, I'm, maybe, maybe. I, I'm, look I'm a bit, with you on that yeah. one, to be honest. Yeah. yeah. Although I know there is, there's all sorts of colour breaks and all sorts of interesting things. Sometimes breeders will pick up on things that are not really that marketable or interesting. <laughs> so it's not necessarily because it exists means it has to have. A, yeah. a place. Yes, yeah. exactly. Yeah, but no, interesting times. Very interesting. Yeah, times. And it's. I think. There's, it's such an underappreciated art form, mm. the 
plant breeding. We we understand what inventors are of technology. Mm. We understand, you know, the Steve Jobs of this world that are or people who have invented more tangible technology. But the story behind plants is so unsung. People don't get or don't understand. And I hope that we, that I hope that in what I'm doing in my work these days can help that story develop, mm. that people can understand what the stories are behind plants. The other thing is that I don't, I don't think the general public appreciate the amount of time and expertise and effort that has to go in to breeding up a new plant. So or much a, time, a, yeah. You know, a new, a new species, a new variation. Um, there's a heck of a... And a, so much commitment. Yeah, I think I, the commitment, it, it can be as small as having a little glass house in your backyard and, and having some seed that you're playing with and seeing what happens. Uh, or it can be on a huge scale, uh, as it is for some breeders in Australia and several overseas. But the commitment's not so much scale as time. I think, yes. I think yes. time and knowledge are the, are the, exactly. the keys to, to plant breeding. Yep. Um, to have, to have a, a critical eye that says, that's a good thing, that's got... You know, it might have a flower colour that is um, suited to the program, but there might be ten... Um, seedlings of that and only one of them shows a disease resistance. Mm. So you've got, to be, you've got to be able to notice that, see that, pick that one and then breed off that one. That's right. And then that that's might be one generation. Yep. And then in subsequent generations there might be another trait that they pick up on and then take that and go. Yep. And so some of these plants, some of the, many of the plants that we have in our gardens that are the cultivars, the ones that are cultivated varieties, have, have probably been through... 10, 15, 20 generations mm. in development mm. before they get to the stage where they're on the market mm. or even to the stage where they're being tested, you know, being trialled amongst other growers to see if they're appropriate because then you've got one plant that grows, you know, you might be in the eastern suburbs of Melbourne, okay, right, that works here, let's send it over to Perth and see what happens yes, over there. exactly. Or vice versa, and we have breeders in Perth that send us material yep. and say so it works over here. Mm. Typically, if it's survived a Perth summer, it's probably going to be okay over here. That's a good test. But yeah. also, also some of these new developments mightn't actually remain stable. True. So they they yeah. might p- produce something that looks fantastic in, in one plant, but when they try to reproduce that again, yeah, it's so harked back to its uh, an yeah. original parent it's or rever- a, one it's branch reverted. reverts and then that yep. takes over. Yep. So I think that's. I mean, if you think of the timeline, there's there's acquiring the genetic material in the first place. Then there's growing however many generations to get and selecting out to get to the point where you're at. Okay, this is a this is a plant that's now worthy of trialling. Mm. That process itself may have taken 10, 20 years. Mm. Then okay, now we've got this variety. We're going to grow it, and it's probably four or five years at that stage. Yes. Of just seeing if it's stable, growing it in different parts of the country, potentially taking it overseas and seeing if um, it has an interest in an international market, uh, and then. And then it becomes commercial mm. and marketable. Mm. Um, I know that there are a couple of um, a couple of Australian bred plants that have have gone very well overseas. I, I can think of, again talking about David Glenn, his uh, Euphorbia Ascot Rainbow uh, has received the highest accolade in horticulture in the world of a, an award of garden merit with the RHS. Yes, right. Uh, it was on the front page of the Plantsman magazine, which is wow. their you know their sort of. Real, their scientific version of the, the garden magazine. Mm. What a terrific accolade for, oh, for gosh, someone yes. in rural Victoria who's obviously an absolute genius with plant material. Yep. But it's now out in the world. You, can, right. you can drive past 
uh, commercial landscapes in California and see his plant planted in on mass. Yes. Um, which is that's the um, that's the joy of working at PMA mm. is to help a breeder take a plant like that and give it a life, give it give it joy in Australian gardens and then take it overseas mm. and see how it's received. Well, look at the work that, that uh, has been done um, with Australian native plants. Mm. Yeah, there's a lot of really... There's, there's, I mean, yeah. to bring them up to garden-worthy plants, yeah. um, you know, requires a whole set of criterias. Yeah. They might have been fantastic out in the bush, but really would not have, have worked in a, in a garden. And, uh, and now, I mean, we've got our Australian native plants all over the world as yeah. well. They yeah. really celebrated and appreciated, sometimes much more than they are back yeah. home. Yeah, I think, and I think there's a, that's, it's an interesting point what we do with Australian native plants because we see them as bush plants or plants in a native, in native garden, in yes. quote marks. Yes. But when you think of the plants that we import into the country or have over the last 200 years, uh, and we use them, in a, we don't think of them as having a, uh, an origin or a home. They don't think of them as a native plant. That's right. But they all are native. Of course somewhere. they are. So yeah. when our plants go to the rest of the world, they're not considered natives. They're just considered garden plants. And you start to look at those. My, my garden is a mixture of natives, exotics, uh, all, all together. But they're mm, mine as well. Pretty much from a, that sort of Mediterranean band. Yes. Like, and it's actually a real, really fun thing to do, to mix in native plant material with exotic plant material. I've got some... Uh, some lovely poa poa formis, which is a native grass. It occurs naturally around the Melbourne area. A bit of a blue tinge, a glaucous tinge to the leaf, and it works really well with sedums mm-hmm. or the little uh, the knapweed, the, the centaurias. Works beautifully. Silver grey tones, and it's, and it's really satisfying to go. Oh, look at this! Look, I'm mixing up the world um, and giving plants a place yep. that doesn't have to be restricted by their by their in- where they're from. Exactly, yep. And, yep. And, and I live right next to the bush. I look into the bush and I love the plants in the bush in, in that context. That's, that's what they are. It's a natural ecosystem out there. Of course. What's in my garden is my indulgence. It's not a natural <laughs> ecosystem. It's <laughs> me playing with plants. Yes. And I'm happy with that. Mm. Yeah, I was, I was amazed. Um, I, I think, as you know, I, w- I was over in, uh, in France, down in Provence, um, earlier in the year and uh, of course, we we visited a lot of different gardens, and the number of times we had a garden owner um, very excitedly talk about um, how he had uh, a really exotic plant in his garden, how much he loved it, and it would turn out to be an Australian native. Oh, really? Yeah, yes, right. they are really appreciated. What sort of what sort of plants there. were they growing? Oh, you name it. Yeah. Um, acacias, grevilleas. Yeah. They were just Absolutely loving them and very proud yep. of, of being able to grow them in their gardens. Well, and they, I guess maybe overseas they have a reputation of being a bit difficult because the, the, the conditions for growing Australian native plants are skeletal soils, low phosphorus. That's right. Hot summers, that's low right. humidity. Yes. And that's us, but it's not necessarily Japan. No. <laughs> it's not necessarily <laughs> Europe. Well, no, that's right. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, it's, and gardeners across the world, I think. Uh, uh, proud to be able to grow something that's out of its range. Oh, we love a challenge, <laughs> yeah, don't we? <laughs> so we, we talk about the changing climate and things getting drier. I still have plants in my garden that are thirsty and require cool conditions, but I've got to find a niche for them. And maybe that niche is getting smaller. But yep. um, 
I, I do have they'll, fun they'll, experimenting. They'll soon tell you when it's time to not persevere with them yeah. anymore because they'll just turn yeah. up their they'll, they'll toes. They'll turn up their toes. And yeah. I'll either blame myself as being no, no good no, at cultivating no, no, them no, no, or no. it's a new opportunity. It's yeah. a new opportunity <laughs> and it's just a sign of the times and the changing climate. So, yeah. 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 Exactly. Yeah. Okay, it's high time I got to a few community announcements and, of course, being springtime, as usual, it's very busy out there at the moment in, uh, in horticultural land. There's a lot on. First up, um, Friends of Burnley Gardens have got their next uh, meeting coming up uh, next Thursday, the 25th of October, and uh, their special guest is Jane Edmondson. Now, Jane probably needs no introduction to anybody. She's actually been involved in horticulture now for over 40 years, um, working in all sorts of uh, different areas in propagation, growing plants, owning and, and managing a retail nursery, um, along with, of course, all her work with television, radio and other media commitments. So uh, she, as I say, will be guest speaker at the meeting. She's entitled her talk, My Life with Plants. Um, now, bookings are essential for this one. Uh, it's, as I mentioned, it's on next Thursday, the 25th, 7 o'clock for a 7.30 start. It will be in Main Building 11 uh, at Burnley Campus, which, of course, is at 500 Yarra Boulevard there in Richmond. Um, 7 o'clock are drinks and nibbles. 7.30 is the actual start. Now, as I mentioned, bookings are essential. The cost is $5 if you're a member of the Friends Group, $15 if you're a non-member. And uh, to book, you need to uh, phone the Friends Office, 9035-6815, and leave a message, or you can email them, friends.burnley at gmail.com. So I'll just give out that number again, 9035-6815, or friends.burnley at gmail.com. Now, also uh, coming up, um, gosh, lots of happening uh, here. Country Farm Perennials have got their open garden and nursery open days. Now, they do this annually. Uh, it's, uh, their address is down at 96 Langs Road, L-A-I-N-G-S, Langs Road in Nayuk. Um, now, it opened 13th of October. That open uh, is running right through until Wednesday, the 7th of November. You can stroll through two and a half acres of manicured cottage gardens. Um, you can see spring blooms on display and a large range of plants available for sale. Now, there will be refreshments available on weekends or you can bring your own picnic and enjoy that in the garden on any day. Now, it's open from 10 till 4 free entry for that one. Now, uh, they're also going to be open while the Gardevalia Festival is on for the 20th uh, and 21st of October and 27th and 28th of October. Um, if you're free entry into that festival as well, uh, and there'll be many other private gardens in that same area open uh, throughout Gippsland uh, for the festival. So if you want to see which gardens are open and get more information on that one, you can go to their website, uh, which is www.gardevalia, spelled G-A-R-D-I-V-A-L-I-A, gardevalia.com.au. And uh, the other Open Gardens weekend coming up is up in Alexandra. This also is an annual event. 
This will be open 27th and 28th of October. They'll have several gardens open in that area as well. And uh, you can uh, email that one as well. Just put in Alexandra Open Gardens and uh, that will all come up. Now, down at uh, Cranbourne uh, Royal Botanic Gardens there, uh, the Friends Group have got their next spring plant sale coming up. Again, this is next weekend, 27th, 28th of October, 10 o'clock through till 4 o'clock on both days. The location, of course, is down at the Cranbourne Gardens, uh, corner of Bellato Road and Botanic Drive in Cranbourne. They'll have a wide range of Australian plants in tubes and larger pots for sale, priced from $3. It's a great opportunity to purchase plants and then have a look around the Australian garden. Now, I mentioned Gardevalia uh, just before. Uh, as part of Gardevalia, the Warrigal Bonsai Group are going to have their bonsai show. Um, this will only take place on Saturday, the 27th of October, and uh, there'll be over 60 developed and quality bonsai trees of varieties and styles displayed. Um, admission is $5 a head for adults, $2 for pensioners, Children under 12 are free. Now, uh, also uh, coming up again next weekend, as I said, there's a lot going on at the moment. There's a lot of uh, volunteers who have been working hard for uh, these shows. It is springtime, exactly. But our good friends up at Fernie Creek Hort Society, they've got their uh, flower festival on next weekend. Again, 27th and 28th of October. Uh, they're up at 100 Hilton Road East in Sassafras. They're um, open from 12 till 4 on the Saturday, 10 till 4 on the Sunday. Entry is uh, $5 for children. Under 14s are free. There is parking within the gardens uh, and there's disability spots available. Now, exhibits will include uh, rhododendrons, azaleas, all sorts of mid-spring flowers, trees and shrubs, hostas and other potted plants. Uh, the plant stalls are well stocked. There'll be food, including, of course, the sausage sizzle, uh, cut flowers and craft. There'll be garden walks um, as well, uh, all taking place up there at Fernie Creek Hort Society. That address, again, 100 Hilton Road East in Sassafras. Uh, now, also... Um, Diggers are running some uh, major um, workshops and uh, a big one that they have coming up is uh, a citrus workshop with Ian Tolley. Now, Ian's the guru of citrus. I know he? Ian very well. Do you? <coughs> he and I go way back. So <laughs> when my, my daughter, who's now 17, when I was working at Diggers, she was, I think, seven or eight. Yes. And she and I went up and stayed with Ian for a couple of days right. and immersed ourselves in the world of citrus. Oh, wow. Uh, and I'd have to say, to this day, that, that week has impacted on my, hugely on my knowledge of citrus. Yes. And, and I've talked to Ian often. Well, Terrific man. Real spirit of knowledge. Yep. Recently released his new book, um, oh, which is okay. called Citrus Around the World. Oh, fantastic. Which, if anyone wants to get the tome on citrus. I mean, That's the Ian one. has been growing citrus for, well, he's in his 90s now, so wow. it'll be 70 years worth of knowledge, yep. both Australia and across the world. Yep. And it has propagation, it has cultivars, varieties, it has uh, 
the citrus trade, it is absolutely worth the the money to buy. It's on my coffee table right now. Okay. There you go. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, as I mentioned, he's running a citrus masterclass. Now, in, in fact, he's running two of them, one at Garden of St. Earth uh, up in Blackwood and the other one at Heronswood down in Dramana. Uh, now, the... Um, the cost uh, for these, if you're a, a member of uh, the Diggers Club, $99. If you're a non-member, $129. Now, this, these masterclasses run for four hours, so, uh, and you also get a delicious gourmet lunch and a glass of wine. So, uh, absolutely fantastic. And, of course, the lunch has uh, been created from the cafe uh, on site, Fork to Fork Cafe, uh, both at Garden of St Earth and at Heronswood. Now, um, I need to give you the dates of these. Uh, up at uh, Garden of St Earth, 27th of October, running from 11am through to 3pm. And the Heronswood one is the next day, the 28th of October, and that's running from 10am through to 2pm. Now, um, you do need to book for those uh, to book. You simply go on their website and uh, as well as those two masterclasses, um, there's also some, a whole uh, feast of other workshops. These ones, are, a lot of these are a lot cheaper because they're running uh, fairly, uh, they don't run for quite as long as the, the four hours with Ian, but um, just to whet your Ian's appetite. Ian's is a special event. Ian's is a very special event, yep. yeah, and absolutely well <coughs> worth um Booking in for, but just to give you um, a bit of an idea of some of the other ones coming up uh, at uh, Cloud Hill, there'll be an introduction to beekeeping, there'll be creating living sculptures, uh, a botanical sketching and watercolour um, at, uh, down at Heronswood, uh, there'll be uh, summer fruit tree pruning and espalier, sensory therapy gardens, creating a bee friendly garden, becoming a beekeeper, and uh, at Garden of St Earth, um, coming up will be tomatoes with Penny Woodward. Uh, again, beekeeping, create your own indoor plant oasis, living a zero waste life and uh, preparing your garden for summer heat. Now, for all of these uh, workshops, you uh, go to the Diggers website and you can have a look at exactly what uh, they entail. You can book there. As I say, they have varying prices depending on how long they run for. Um, the shortest ones, I think, go for about an hour and a half. Uh, now, the website, go to www.diggers.com.au forward slash what's, uh, what's-on and all that information will come up. But I'm sure if you go into diggers.com.au, you'll find your way around the website and you'll uh, have a look. But if you have any chance of of uh, catching up with Ian Tolly, I really do recommend that. Very, very well worthwhile doing. He'll answer every question on citrus you could ever imagine. <laughs> I, know, I know for a fact that after he's been doing those workshops or those, those master classes for years. Yes. And after each one, he'll write down every question that was asked. Wow. And, and they go into his knowledge bank. Yes. And so I don't think there's not... A, a citrus question that hasn't been asked of yeah. you. Well, maybe that's a challenge. Go maybe along and see if you can find a new one. one. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Something really obscure yeah, that he yeah. hasn't yeah. thought about being a problem. See if you can stump Ian. Yeah. <laughs> 
Oh, dear. Um, I do have to get through a few more, everybody. I'm sorry, but there's so much happening, uh, and I will get to calls very soon. Uh, firstly, Open Gardens Victoria, of course, have got their next uh, Open Garden coming up next weekend. Uh, this is uh, an art and craft style garden. Um, at, uh, it's called Brim Brim. Um, it's uh, running as part of the Buninyong Festival. This is uh, opening next weekend, 27th, 28th um, of October. It's a five-acre garden there at Brim Brim. Um, it surrounds a historic Gold Rush homestead built in 1859. Uh, the gardens have been added to and enhanced by a succession of owners, including the current owners. Now, um, it, uh, it has uh, flower borders, winding paths, a beautiful use of local materials. There are scores of standard roses edged with perennials, uh, flowering bulbs and other plants to add a lot of colour to the evergreen garden. Now, um, visitors uh, should all also look out for several historically significant trees planted in the 1890s by the previous owner, Dr John Salmon, and uh, he was a member of the Buninyong Horticultural Society there. So uh, the opening coincides with Buninyong Festival Weekend. Um, uh, on the Sunday, the 28th, there will be three other gardens open as well in nearby Yule Street as part of that festival. And other activities will include a fair, craft and food market, art exhibition by local artists and a car boot stall at the local primary school. So uh, the details, Brim Brim Garden is at 901 Lau Lau Street in Buninyong. You enter via Hasty Street. As I mentioned, Saturday 27th, Sunday 28th of October, open 10 till 4.30 both days. Entry is $8, students $5, children under 18 free. Uh, as I mentioned, there'll be coffee vans, sausage sizzle, and uh, the Buninyong Festival running across the weekend with uh, three more gardens in nearby Yule Street on the Sunday, the 28th. Now, um, as usual, our good friends at Open Gardens Victoria have given us one free double pass to the first listener who'd like to phone in and uh, get that free double pass. You can give Liz a call right now on that number, 9419. Uh, 0155. That's 94190155 to uh, get that free double pass. I do have a couple more announcements I have to do, but I might come back to them because we do have our first uh, caller online and uh, we'll go to. Uh, uh, it looks like we don't have. Ah, okay. Um, I think. <coughs> is it Pippa? She's left a message. She's left a message which I can't quite. No, I think Please. she was after what, um, how to get Ian's book. Oh, how to get Ian's book. Which I've just looked up. So if, if people are interested in getting Ian Tolley's book, yes. if you go to the website, which is his website called Common Sense Citrus. Okay. Uh, and on there you'll see, if this is all of Ian's material on there. Yes. There's, uh, not only can you get the book, so you can just buy it direct online from, from Ian's website, yep. but there's also a whole bunch of little instructional videos uh, which relate to material that's in the book. Fantastic. Uh, and they're all hosted on that website. So commonsensecitrus.com. Now, I would imagine that diggers would have copies of that and book sure as well. And I'm sure they will. I'm sure yeah. they would. I, and I, in fact, I think the the... 
the workshop or the, the masterclass we were just talking about is called Common Sense Citrus. And I'm sure he'd have and he'll more copies of books, books available, available and you can probably yeah. get him to sign one for you as sure. well. Yep. Yeah, so that would be fantastic. Okay, brilliant. All right, uh, while we're waiting for a call to come through, uh, I will give out the, uh, the talkback line. That number is 94190155. 9419. 0155 if you'd like to speak to Tim Sansom. Uh, Tim's in the studio with me at the moment, so do give us a call, 94190155. I will go to those couple of uh, community announcements I didn't have time to fit in. Uh, the first one is from the Australian, uh, uh, Australian Plant Society, Keelor uh, Plains Group. They've got their next meeting coming up on November the 2nd. We're nearly into November, goodness me. Mm. Now, this, It'll be uh, Christmas. Oh, shush. <laughs> I saw that. a big inflatable Santa out the front of Bunnings the other oh, day. Does didn't. that mean it's Christmas? You didn't. Gosh, they start early, don't they? Yeah, they do, year round. <laughs> oh, goodness me. Okay, well, this, uh, this talk starts uh, 7.50. Guest speaker is uh, University of Melbourne Associate Professor Nick Williams. He's giving a talk on the benefits of using Australian plants on green roofs. That'll be an interesting one. Now, the address is Rayleigh Road Activity Centre, 54 Rayleigh Road in Maribyrnong. Rayleigh Road is spelled R-A-L-E-I-G-H. Uh, there in Maribyrnong and uh, cost is free. If you'd like further information, you can contact Anne. Her number is 9336 That's 9336 And if I could just add, the green roofs are one of those sort of new garden, uh, new, new garden climate developments that are yes. happening. Yes, uh, Sustainable gardening using plant material for insulation, uh, and a wonderful way to get biodiversity into our urban environment. So Absolutely. really, and, and University of Melbourne and Nick are, are cutting edge on what's happening in this space across mm. the world. Mm. Mm. And of course, um, uh, we've learned a lot from, from the few people who've, who've gone out there and seized the bull by the horns and mm. created gar- rooftop gardens, haven't we? Well, and, and I and think Burnley, Burnley especially. Yes, and, and exactly. I, they've really been experimenting, not just with types of plants and what works well, but Things like having to reinforce yeah, the roof, the engineering. drainage. There's yeah. a lot to the engineering. Yeah, to it's do not it. just a matter of dropping some dirt on a roof and putting some sedums in. No, it's, there is a lot to it, and and I think if it's integrated in urban design, which is increasingly oh, happening, exactly, then it's integrated into the structure of the building. Exactly. It's, it's part of the R rating, which is the insulation rating of the building. Yes, then then you're really getting this synthesis of um, of design, horticulture, and sustainability. It's it, Really interesting stuff. We we actually need we need um, horticulturalists to work, work much more closely with architects. Yeah, um, we really do. I think that's the way of the future. Yeah, I, I mean, think there's there's so much knowledge, practical knowledge amongst plant people in Australia, um, but there's actually sometimes a bit of a gap between the built environment or the the landscape designers or architects. And what is good plant material? How to match them up? The skills are there. It's just, oh, yeah. it's just the synthesis. It's just the connections. Yep. And I think Burnley are doing a terrific job. Oh, they are absolutely. Mm. Yeah, they're fantastic. Okay, just one last one that I should mention. And uh, Garden Design Fest is coming up now. Um, Garden Design Fest only happens once every two years, 
Um, and uh, it's a fantastic opportunity to uh, visit gardens and actually meet uh, the designers that created them. Those, it's, the whole point is to, to meet the designers. They will be in each of the gardens. You can talk to them. You could look at their garden designs. And uh, they're a really What a great wonderful. way to learn. They're yeah. a fantastic opportunity. And as usual, um, they are... They not only they are running over more than uh, one weekend, which is great because it gives you plenty of opportunity. Now, on Saturday, uh, the tenth of November, uh, they've got the Goldfields region uh, round oh, Ballarat yep. um, and gardens opening up there. Um, Saturday, the seventeenth of November, they're dealing with Melbourne metropolitan area, which also includes the Mornington Peninsula as well. So. Two separate weekends, um, Saturday and Sunday, 10th and 11th of November, and then the Saturday and Sunday, 17th and 18th of November. So one is dealing with regional gardens, the other one is dealing with Melbourne Metropolitan and Mornington Peninsula Gardens. Now, um, you can purchase uh, a a single entry uh, ticket for gardens at the garden gates on the day, um, but you can also uh, purchase tickets for which covers every single garden, which which is a challenge it's a busy to anybody. Of <laughs> Get I, your de- Learjet I ready. defy anyone to do it. I, I tried to do it one one weekend. I really did try and get round a whole lot of them, and I tell you, I didn't make it. <laughs> It's too impossible. But as well as that, if you don't want to be driving and trying to find all these different gardens, they are running bus tours as well. Now, I, I, should, um, I should mention that um, a single entry uh, to a garden, um, the cost depends on the size of the garden. So $5, $8 or $12 um, for an all-garden entry. For the rural gardens... Uh, $40, and those tickets um, hold for the whole Saturday and Sunday, the full weekend. Um, and for the Melbourne metropolitan area plus Mornington Peninsula, $60, and again, that holds for both the Saturday and the Sunday. As I say, if you don't want to drive and you want to join a bus tour, and these bus tours will be guided, you will have a, a horticultural guide on the bus. Um, the Goldfields region runs on Saturday the 10th. Uh, the cost for that is $195. Saturday the 17th, which is the Melbourne metro area only, um, $170. And on the Sunday the 18th, they'll just concentrate on the Mornington Peninsula, and that's back to $195. So um, the thing to do is to jump online. This is all up on their website. You can, you can scroll down. They list down. each of the gardens they list and each of the, every each of the designers. Single garden. Yep. They've got photographs of each of the gardens. They list all the designers. So if you jump in ahead, you can, you can actually make yourself an itinerary um, for each of the different areas if you want to. So simply go to gardendesignfest, all one word, dot com dot au. And it'll all be there. But if you just type in Garden Design Fest, I'm sure it'll it will all come up. So uh, that's all coming up. And it's, it's a wonderful opportunity. As I say, they only run it once every two years. So um, a great opportunity to go and see some amazing gardens and meet some wonderful designers. Mm. Well, I'm delighted to say that uh, we're now joined by um, two students from Burnie, Burnley uh, College. Um, are you postgrad? 
Or no, uh, we're undergrad. So we're okay, doing the, so uh, the associate degree. Of my gosh, you're, you're busy. You're, you people are very busy then. You've got lots going on. But I do have to say a big hello, firstly, to, to Kirsty Edwards. Morning, Kirsty. Hi, good morning. And uh, also to Pat Turnbull. Hi, Pat. How you doing? Thanks for coming in. I know Sunday mornings early is uh, no, a bit of a right. challenge. <laughs> <That's all right. laughs> but, uh, but, yeah, I've, I've invited you to on because... Um, well, in, in, in conjunction with Charlotte, you've set up um, a not-for-profit little organisation, um, Farm Raiser, yeah. and there's so much to talk about this. So, um, Pat, maybe you can make a start and tell us what exactly is Farm Raiser. Yeah, so Farm Raiser, like you said, a not-for-profit organisation that we've set up over the last couple of months. We're putting market gardens in schools with you know, vacant or unused land. And we're going to sell the veg to the um, local community and have that act as a fundraiser for the school. Now that, I mean, you, you call it a market garden. That, in my mind, means you need a reasonable size space. Yeah, Are you, you finding those? Look, we have found one. We've got a pilot project. Um, it's at Waratah Special Developmental School in Belfield, which is near Heidelberg. Yes. I mean... More and more we're seeing small-scale farmers grow on a small parcel of land and still um, have it you know, financially sustainable and resilient. Um, the piece of land we've got is almost three-quarters of a hectare. So we do have uh, quite a large parcel of land, especially in the city. It's yes. quite rare to find something mm-hmm. like what, that. What was it before you got um, It was Banksy, Banksy Secondary College. Mm-hmm. And so it got sold um, oh, seven or eight, maybe, probably even more years ago. Okay. So it's just been lying fallow. For yeah, so the um, it was. Yeah, it was. It was. Yes, and so yes. um, on the cricket pitch, on the cricket oval, this new school, Waratah Special Elementary School, has been built, and there was a parcel of land at the back that's that's that is their land, but has never been used. It gets it gets mowed every couple of weeks. So that's about it. What was the soil like? Was it heavily impacted? And it's actually fine. Really? Yeah, it really is because. There's nothing, not, not, it's never been built on. Okay. Um, so all it's had is it's been growing grass, biomass, yeah, being mown, chopped yeah. down. It's been a paddock, it's basically. Actually, it's been a no-till <laughs> preparation Yeah, exactly. For you. Yep, perfect. Wow. Okay. Um, now, do, as part of your preparation, did you have to do soil testing? We have done soil tests now. Yep. We, um, <clears throat> we're not on site yet. Okay. Um, we're hoping uh, spring next year yes. we'll, be, we'll be on. Um, at the moment, we're just going through... Finishing uni, um, getting funding together um, so we can yeah, get going next year. Okay. So a- as part of that, you've, you've done a crowd fundraising, haven't yeah. you? Yeah. Yeah. Yes. And it how did amazing. that go? It was such a rewarding experience. You, you go into a, a crowdfunding ca- uh, campaign not knowing anything about it and then... It's it's this really overwhelming thing where it's like, oh, people are really generous and really want to help people out. Give and yeah. People want to give money. That's strange. Because <laughs> um, we go into it, you know, our head's sort of a little bit in the sand because we're so deep in the project and we're thinking about all these different layers and, you know, the legal stuff and all the social media stuff and the marketing stuff. And then mm. you launch this campaign and it's... It all kind of clicks together and people are willing to put their hand up and say, hey, this is a good project and we want to see it come to fruition. And Mind you, I have to say, you tempted the public. Yeah. You offered all sorts of, of goodies <laughs> yeah. in return for donations, didn't you? Yeah, it's, um, yeah, we looked at some past crowdfunding campaigns who did it really well 
um, and sort of, you know, took that model and ma- made it our, ours. Okay. Yeah. Fair enough. Well, it's worked. <laughs> yeah. I, I think you've actually reached your target, haven't you? Well, yeah, we did. We went over. So we reached our first target and then we had a stretch reward, uh, stretch goal, which we made. And then we, I think we got a thousand dollars over our stretch goal. Wow. Which, mm. which is pretty cool. Fantastic. Yeah. So that means we have a two wheel walk behind tractor and a greenhouse. Well, we've got the money to purchase it. So yes. we're just waiting to, get a shed so we can house our tractor <laughs> and <laughs> so you've got access to the site now yeah, yeah so you can do. you can put a shed and you yep. can yeah okay yeah so you, yeah so who, you're underway really yeah yeah, yeah. They, are, they are who actually came up with the idea of the project well funnily enough um i live around the corner and i was doing an irrigation assignment at the school ah um and noticed this yeah the large parcel land at the back and got in touch with the principal and spoke to the school council and I mean, even some of them didn't know it was school land. Really? Yeah, they, because it just hadn't been used for so long, and they had, there's a little bit of a bike path there that the students use, but really it's just it's sort of, yeah, it's been sitting empty. And so I just, yeah, I've always been interested in growing food in the city. That's sort of a passion of mine. Um, and asked them if they wanted, if I could do something there, and they were really interested. Okay. Yeah, they, they, they like the community engagement. They like the idea that, the kids um, will be able to get practical work skills on site rather than having to bus and, and, and go off site to, to do that. And, and, and you're going to involve the wider community as well, aren't you? Yeah, that's right. So we would love to, you know, first and foremost, sell the veg to the local community. We love to run community events on weekends and, and, and things like that. Um, that, that, that. That is the, yeah, the far, far aim for the farm. So, so would you include in that um, uh, working bees with the general public? Um? Yeah, of course. Yep, yep, definitely. I mean, being a school, it can be a little tricky around during school hours. Um, and so we'd like to get this, the kids involved during school hours. But then on the weekends, yeah, definitely we'd love to open it up to working bees and, and the like. So the staff um, at the school, are they going to develop um, like a curriculum based on the on the garden or how's that going to work yeah or do you have to come up with workshop ideas that you can run with the kids or we we've had a few conversations with the school about that so far and um yeah it, it's not our area of expertise and we're very aware of that Fair that enough. we that we've um yeah we we've got the horticultural knowledge through our course and we're going to be still learning so much on the farm and be very focused on that so we're um we yeah said that we're happy for them to to sort of take the reins in that area, or we think that that's the right thing to do because yeah. that they know how how the students work and what uh, outcomes are needed for each student and sure um, yeah that'll be that'll be in their court. Yeah, we hope that the money raised f- f- through the fundraising of selling the veg can hopefully pay for a horticultural staff member. Um, or uh, or pay for a, a curriculum based around market garden or urban farming. Mm-hmm. Um, that's that's the the hope. Once we get to a point where we can, you know, pay for a wage or pay for someone to be there, even if it's once 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 a week. Yep, yep. Now um, you you were saying that um, you you're planning to sell the veg. Um, some of that profit, uh, I presume, some will have to go back into the garden. Mm. Will some go to the school? Yeah, so yeah, there'll be a portion that goes to the school um, <clears throat> because it, we're a charity. Um, we'll get tax concessions, and also we'll um, hopefully have a, a you know 
a zero dollar lease or something on the land, which 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 enables us to fundraise for the school and yes. have some of the profits go back. Okay, okay, and and I think your idea was veggie boxes. Yeah, that's right. Um, I hope you realise that that you're going to have to somehow have a constant supply. Mm. So uh, once you're up and running, uh, the public who are buying these veggie boxes will expect a veggie box. What once a week, once a fortnight? What are you planning? Yeah, once once a week to once a fortnight, depending on um, yeah, looking at the the CSA model, so that then we do have uh, a little bit of. Um, a little bit of backup in terms of knowing how many boxes we're going to be to be selling, so that then we can account for that. Um, but that's that's definitely something that we've as as it being a pilot project that we are um, going to be investing a lot of time into to learning in the first twelve months, and we know that we've got. Um, yeah, we've got a lot of food to get out of out of the ground. <laughs> yeah, there are some really and good models out there. Yeah, and, and that's what we've plenty been. of people that want to help you out. Yeah, yeah. transition farms down on the peninsula. They're there's great. A series through mm. fair food. There's plenty of people who help you out. Yeah, see, these models are great because you have a sort of a capped amount of boxes per week. So yeah. if you, you know what your volume, yeah, is. you set the yeah. volume at twenty boxes per week. You sort of know how much silver beet you need to grow, how much this you need to grow, and. Um, yeah, you can really plan to that rather than having sort of an open, mm. open ordering system. Mm. Have, has the school got any um, ideas down the track um, of maybe uh, integrating this with cooking? Maybe putting in a kitchen with the students? Yeah, they, they 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 cook on Fridays. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. So they have like a lunch order on Fridays, um, where I'm not sure who comes in and, and does the cooking, but the senior students will cook cook a meal for for the staff and for the students. And so, yeah, we would really love to link in with that um, and, and, and be able to provide the food that they, they want mm-hmm. um, on site, which I think would be yeah, really rewarding. Yeah, and this is part of Charlotte's expertise, isn't it, yeah. as the third member of the, Sh- of the group? She's, she's into... into yeah, she's, she can cook. Kitchen. Yeah, yeah she's cook. a good cook. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah. Um, the logistics of water... On mm. the site, and that obviously, I guess, will go on the bill of the school. How do how do you equate that? Because that's been a stumbling block in the past with with trying to share land parcels mm. or or you know spare land that private owners have. And uh, so, how do you tackle water? We're we're really lucky. There is a huge uh, waste transfer station next door, and the built like the. The square meterage on the roof there is just massive. Um, and we've always already had some conversations with uh, Banyol City Council about if we were to get grant applications, also through um, there's some grant opportunities with uh, Melbourne Water as well that we're going to be going for. So we'll be the aim is to pull as much water as we can off of that roof that is yep. just adjacent to the property. Yep. And... Um, yeah, that'll be our, our main water source. So we, we are hoping to, yeah, through the project, it'll be minimal, like, cost of land. So we'll have, like, a, a tokenistic style of lease. Yes, yes. Um, and minimal cost of, of water, that it'll be pump maintenance and all of that kind of stuff, that most of it will be covered. Mm. So that's that's all to be decided exactly in the next couple of months. But, right. um Yeah, that's that's the plan. Okay. Tim, how do you see this fitting in alongside um, school gardens and, and the, the setup we already have with a lot of Victorian schools having their own school gardens? 
Yeah, I, as you know, Pam, I'm, I sit on the Victorian School Garden Awards Committee. Mm. Um, so I've had quite a bit of exposure to school gardens. The model that you guys are talking about is a different in that it's it's a it's got a different context. I mean, there's plenty of um, Stephanie Alexander kitchen gardens, mm-hmm. which are all about a, a integrated garden within the school. Mm. Yours sounds to me like it's a, a special project on its own, which is going to stand on its own two feet and then feed in, feed resources, mm-hmm. produce funds back into the school. Yeah. And I, that's really exciting. Yeah. It actually takes it to a different different conversation. It's a different level. For a level. lot of the research we had been doing at uni with a couple of our subjects, it was sort of co- constantly coming back to this problem with urban food was that... Um, people are really into it and people really want to be involved in community gardens and school gardens and the demand is there but it's um, it's the lack of um, you know you've often got like a, a strong volunteer base or you've got a one team member who's willing to sort of go and do grant applications and do, and do all the work and if they fall away then the garden often yeah. falls away too and school sure. communities are transient in that way yeah. by their very nature yeah, mm. yeah. You know, mm. parents move through kids yeah. move through and if you so have a year where there's no one yeah. who's like yeah. really going yeah. to take yeah. it on then it, it falls over and we just think that the demand is there that enough that there needs to be another way to deliver that sort of a mm. resource without having to rely on a volunteer or a, mm. yeah, on a, a... And you've got, it's going to be a living classroom as well, which a yeah. lot of the other sort of kitchen garden programs mm. are, but you've got great potential to do courses beyond just the students at the school, mm. like the sort of courses that can, that, you know, for any of us that want to learn to grow food in the yeah. community and you know, hundreds of thousands of people within kilometres of your garden. Yeah. Courses on urban food production for mm. for just someone who wants to grow some veggies in their backyard. Yep. It, the community contact is what's different to in your model to, to many of the school models where they're very focused on their school community but not the broader community. Mm. Yeah. Uh, so... Taking it into that space, I think, is really exciting. Yeah. Yeah, the school's really keen on that as well because a lot of their students aren't aren't necessarily local. They've got a large transport zone that covers sort of the inner north north suburbs. And so um, they're really keen to engage the the local community Mm. and they see this 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 farm or, or market garden as a way of doing yeah. that, mm. which is really great, and that's what we're interested in as well. Yeah, yeah, yep, absolutely. And you just said then it's 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 not just market garden; it's farm. Mm-hmm. Like you're talking about doing orchard spaces and yeah. livestock. Yeah. We're, um, <laughs> we're interested in having it as productive as possible. Yeah, um, I think that's another sort of mm, not issue, but sort of fall down with a lot of community garden spaces is that they're great socially and a really great space to be, um, but the productivity isn't necessarily... Yeah. Some uh, of them aren't set up for productivity. No, no, no. they're not. Yeah, they're, they're not. And so, at, like, we we have this financially viable without <clears throat> extra funding and funding from the schools. Um, it needs to be productive, mm. and we want to be um, financially sustainable ourselves. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, and I think you can. I think mm. it, it'll... If you've got water, you've got land. Mm. I mean, they're two big boxes to tick. And they certainly is, are. You know, the, you can get those things, and now it's expertise. And if you guys can bring that expertise in and bring a design through, mm. it sounds like you're all over the marketing. You know, you got, <laughs> do more GoFundMe, you'll go yeah. crazy. <laughs> can we do that every week? Yeah. <laughs> I think our friends and family might get a bit yeah. annoyed yeah. if that's the case. I, I, I can, yes. Um, the one problem is, at the moment, there's just the three of you, mm. and... <clears throat> 
you know, 12 months is a, <laughs> a big spread. It's going to be constant work. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, as well as, you know, uh, sowing, harvesting, you know, doing up the veggie boxes, watering. There's so much time. There's all the planning of what you're going to mm-hmm. sow seasonally and, and have succession plantings. And there's a heck of a lot of work involved. Yeah, there is. Heaps. But, I mean, <laughs> yeah, I... I, I pers- you need to rope I, in some more friends. <laughs> I, yeah. per- I personally can't wait to do it. To, yeah. Like I'm, um, I'm um, yeah, two years of uni and planning and chomping at the bit to actually get in there okay. and start planning. And I mean that's where volunteers and a, a good volunteer base helps. I think um, a lot of uh, ur- urban food growing um, does rely heavily on, on on volunteers. And if we can open that up, you know, on a Saturday morning or. A, Wednesday afternoon or something like that. Um, that can yeah give us a give us a hand in in, in that sense. Yes, yes. But okay. I, I think in our model too, like as well, as much as we know we'll have that, we don't. Pat and I discussed really early on that we didn't want to rely on that. That we want to that we um we want to create the system. I think design is something that I know Pat's been researching a lot on and just building efficiency into the design. Like we're really fortunate now that we've got this lead time where we can, if we can nail the design and nail all of the processes that need to go on in the farm to, you know, to not be wasting any seconds in the mm. minute and yes. making that sure that there's a really high level of efficiency to make sure that there's, that, you know, we'll all be working, like the three of us will all be working pretty yeah, long you, days, especially in the machinery. summer. And That's it. You're getting some machinery. Mm. Yeah. yeah. You will not be able to do it with just a spade and no. a pole. No, no, no. You know, a broad fork. Yeah. It's not going to happen. And... I'm, years ago, I worked in a uh, community permaculture garden in central Victoria, which was a th- run through the Salvation Army, mm-hmm. yeah. uh, and it was similar. It was actually an old, it was the old footy ground of the of yeah. primary school. The primary school was sold off and became the headquarters of the Salvation Army. Mm-hmm. Um, but we ran that program as a work for the doll scheme, so we had ready labour. Mm. So we didn't have any machinery, but we mm. could do it because we had people to plough the fields and yep. sow the seeds. If you're not going to work that model and rely on volunteers or external labour, you've got to be efficient, I think. Yeah, you've got to, and, and think about what your, what your machinery is going to be, your equipment's going to be, design the mm. whole system around that. Yeah. And there's, some, there's great technology around that there these is. days and growing by the day. Mm. Yeah, we've <clears throat> lent on a, a couple of people in Australia to, 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 know that, to understand that um, farming system. There's a fella in um, Tasmania, Longley Organic Farm, James has been really helpful because he, he's now importing a lot of that European and American technology um, on small-scale farming and making it available and affordable yeah. to um, those in Australia. And it's a huge movement in the States. Yeah, sort of it's a, massive. Yeah. And it's and yeah. Canada as well. And, it, and, it's, yeah. and it's specifically around that scale of yeah. farming. It's, mm. it's not broad acre. It's, it's and it's not one to home two acres. Gardens. Yeah, yeah. And, and little bits of machinery, little gizmos, even mm. little polytunnels that roll back and forth. There's... Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm excited for you. Yeah. <laughs> I want to come yeah. on. Yeah, board. I can't wait. <laughs> <laughs> our first volunteer. <laughs> when do you actually hope to get started? Uh, we, we'd really like to... Uh, I mean, we're going to be spending our summers at least one to two days a week each on some local um, small-scale farms. Um, so then I think that, that once that's done, we, mm. we won't... 
we've got to deal with the grass first. Sure. Um, so that's number one priority is to to handle that because yeah, we don't want to be pulling we'll, up grass. The yeah, whole we'll time be getting we'll be getting tarps down this yep. summer, I think. Okay. Um, big silage tarps down to kill off the grass, and then hopefully taking veg out next spring. Yeah. Yeah, I think that you know we talk about the using appropriate technology and mm. knowledge. You could just throw yourselves into it right now mm. and you'll never get rid of that grass. No. So it's that preparation, that's part of that design, part yeah. of that, that key to success is yeah. knowing what you're doing because if that's still there, and, and I know from that garden in Bendigo we had an orchard section that we didn't get rid of the cooch mm-hmm. yeah. and we were organic. So, mm. we, were, so we were literally hand-pulling out cooch. the cooch. Yeah. The yeah. What a waste of time. Yeah. Yeah. So <laughs> don't go there. I presume you're going to be organic. Yes, we are. Thank goodness yeah. for that. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think I don't think you could start small scale farming now and not be no. organic. It'd be You're not going to nuke it with a roundup. No, good. Oh dear, it's it's very exciting. I must admit, yeah, Thank it's you. It, it's it's a great idea. But as I say, I see a lot of work. Um, I'm also wondering about about um, where you see yourselves in a couple of years' time. Mm-hmm. I mean, obviously, you're finishing off your degrees, but you have to earn some money mm. at the end of the day. You, you're going to need careers in horticulture of some form. Are you hoping to to somehow eventually generate um, some income yourselves to, to sustain yourselves out of this whole project or will you take on a different aspect of horticulture during your day, day hours or, you know, how is this going to work and fit in with your own lifestyle? We hope to um, yeah, get a wage out of this project. Yeah, that's the that's the got to be the the end end goal. Um, <clears throat> they talk about six figure farming now and 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 getting uh, basically <clears throat> selling enough edge from a small enough space to to get six figures. Um, not not each of course, but no, no. A, a, as a total um, as a to- total in, not income down the track down the track down the track <laughs> yeah. yeah. And so I mean, if we can open up. More of these uh, sites and farms at uh, different schools. That's that's the end name as well. Mm. I guess once you've got this site Warrata up and running, then you've got something that you can you can something you know practical and positive that you can take around and show to other schools and talk to them about what's involved. Um, do you think there are many schools around Melbourne metropolitan area that have got actual vacant land? I've done a bit of Google mapping. <laughs> yeah, so there are there are um, there are a few special developmental schools as well seem to have space. Yes, um, quite a bit of space. I think um, I, I don't think they're on the biggest footprint um, in terms of how much land they take up on on their piece of land. Um, so well, their numbers of students are, are usually much smaller because they've got a, a much higher ratio of staff to students. Yeah, so, that's um, right. So that potentially does um, free up a lot of the land that the school's sitting on. Yeah, I've, I've noticed a couple of schools. I think there's one in South Morang, one in Laylaw, that seem to have um, large parcels of land that we could engage with mm. um, and see once this Waratah site's up and running, um, see what, what could happen at other sites. And, I mean, once we get a bit of momentum, um, yeah, we're, I, I think we're hopeful that schools will come to us. Um, and see what we're doing and, and, and how we can implement it, even even on a, a small scale to provide a s- small revenue stream for that school and, and uh, an educational resource for the students. Mm. Are you going to start up? Sorry. Oh, I was just going to say, I think a, a big thing that is also a, a really, um, just on that income thing that a lot of other small-scale farmers are doing is just the whole 
realisation that it's diversity of income and it's not just, you know, you look to most um, small-scale farming in the States and, and they are doing other things beyond just selling food. Yes. Um, and and that will be something that will be looking to. We don't know how it looks exactly at the moment, but no, like you're saying with workshops and, and events and it being a space where where pe- other people can come and do things and, and we all sort of bring, it's like the nice little thing of being in a team is we all bring something else to the table and of you know, with Charlotte having her food background and I've got an events background and, and we've all got like something that we can bring along that hopefully it'll I can it'll see a pizza it'll... oven on site <laughs> <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah <laughs> Oh no! I, no, I think I think the concept is gra- you know really really great. I'm I'm delighted at, at your enthusiasm because that enthusiasm in the middle of winter is going to wane, I suspect, mm. a little bit. And uh, um, what's incidentally, what's drainage like on the site? Have you seen it during winter? No, I haven't been out after big rain. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> there's a small uh, flood overlay. Okay. Um, so that might be an issue, but. Look, you know, that's that's the design part of it, and you can, I think you can work around that. Yeah, mm. for sure. Okay, well, all the best to you. Um, Thank you. I, I, I also, um, so, that, so that the public can, can follow you um, and, and other schools can latch on, are you mm. going to have a website and show, you know, as you get started? Yeah, we've got a Facebook and Instagram. So okay. Instagram's farmraiser.au, um, and on Facebook we're farmraiser. Um, you can get in contact yeah, through, through, through the social media streams. Otherwise, we've got email as well, info at farmraiser.com.au. We do have our website. It is um, www.farmraiser.com.au. It's just that if you chuck it into Google, our uh, <laughs> SEO and all of that stuff is something that we haven't gotten onto yet. Yeah. So okay. you have to actually put the URL in in order to, to get it to come up. So. Okay. Mm. Yeah. But down the track, that should be people will only need to think farm raiser or, yeah. or if they go into... Um, Hopefully in the next couple of months. Yeah, we'll into Facebook that. or something. Yeah, you can find us on Facebook, yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. Fantastic. Well, you know, congratulations and, and very good luck for the future. Thanks Thank for having you. us in. No, no, pleasure. Appreciate and, it. Uh, yeah, it's, it's always good to spread the word and, uh, you know, let us know. When you need a call out for volunteers and things, because we're only too happy to um, to back you up. Thanks so I much. I think it's a great Cheers. idea. Thank okay. you. Okay, cool. Thanks very Cheers, much. Thank you. you. Okay. Well, it's time we uh, we did uh, take our callers. We've had uh, Margaret in Camberwell waiting very patiently. Good morning, Margaret, and thanks for oh, waiting. Good morning. Yes, I'm hoping you can help my picture plant. Last year, I purchased it at the Growing Friends plant sale and it's extremely healthy and it's got new shoots coming. Sounds like you're doing a great job Margaret. Oh well but I've I've got one old picture I think that's what it's called left and it's past its use by date really. Is it is it shriveling up? Yes yes I'm wondering how I can encourage more pictures to. Has it it, they because this is a nepenthes I imagine The plant is called a Nepenthes, that's the the genus, Um, and they will typically, well, they grow the the picture or the jug, so just to describe to the listeners, a picture plant grows a little, like a jug-like end off the leaf. Yeah, like a little bottle, hangs down, has a bit of water in it, and it's actually 
It actually is an insect trap. Yes. So yes, but that's its main source of fertiliser, catching insects. It, it's that's a, right. It's a bonus source, I think. It, it gets it in combination from its roots in the in the in the soil or in the potting media, and yeah, and you get the you get the added advantage that it's controlling all the the blowflies in your house. Exactly. Yeah, Mine get quite a few mosquitoes. actually. Mosquitoes and mosquitoes. Great yeah. yes, I'm door. wondering how I can encourage more pictures. Okay, I mean, so there's only one. Yeah. Poor, poor old thing left. So and if the plant is healthy and happy and growing well, it mine, which is not always happy and healthy and growing well, but it always produces new pitches. So I am always cutting the old ones off when they start to shrivel. You because it, it's on a bit of a tendril that comes off the end of the leaf. Yes, I just yes, snip yes. that off, and they generally just keep producing new ones. I've never had mine stop producing them. Oh, good. Well, how old is yours? Uh, two years old. <laughs> Oh, it's quite wow. small. I haven't really tended it very well. In fact, I snipped a bit of dead stuff off it last night <laughs> to try and get some new material to but grow. You're not supposed, according to the directions, you're not supposed to give it fertiliser. It fertilises. No, it. no, no. They don't need. So, if if I, I'm thinking, if yours is growing quite happily, you know, it yeah, is, and it is got happy. green leaves and it's producing new green leaves, it will produce I, new pictures all by itself. I wouldn't it. do anything no. to it. Yeah. Just leave it and yeah. water it. Yeah. Yes. And, and don't water it too much. Um, no, no. They, they it's don't... in a fairly small pot. Yeah. Should I put it into a bigger one? Um, if, you do, if it gets to the point where you want to pot it up, use a really open mix, like an orchid mix or something like yeah. that, because so, they don't like heavy um, soil. No. Um, so nice and open. But it, it sounds to me like yours is quite happy, and, and it will oh, produce new happy. pictures. It, it, yeah. it will. I'm yeah. sure it'll produce more, Margaret. It, it'll want to eat more mozzies. Oh, good. <laughs> Actually, I've got a dog I adopted, my brother's dog, and the bones, his bones produce a lot of, or encourage a few blowflies, so I could put it out yeah. and catch a few blowflies. The, the problem is they're limited to only a couple of blowflies. They won't get hundreds of them. No, that's all right. I'd better let you go. <laughs> okay. Thank you very much. Okay. Mm. Bye, Margaret. Bye. Right. Bye-bye. Uh, now, uh, Marion has uh, called in to say that uh, she visited uh, an open garden yesterday, which is Cloverdale Garden. Now, this garden is open this weekend for Open Gardens Victoria. And um, she mentioned that uh, it was absolutely wonderful. She recommends it to anyone. Um, it is open today from 10 o'clock through till 430 uh, this garden is in Werribee. It's at 85 Browns Road in Werribee. Um, entry is $8, students $5, children under 18 free. And she highly recommends it and said there weren't many people there as well. So, um, so she did enjoy that. So if you've got nothing planned for today, um, there you go. There's something else you could uh, think about doing if you'd like a, a quick uh, trip down to Werribee. Uh, if you'd like to give us a call, we're running through until 9.15, our usual time slot. Um, do give us a call. We have uh, Tim Sansom in the studio this morning. Um, he's a guru on growing just about anything. He's experienced so many different ranges of, of jobs. Uh, but do give us a call. That number is 94190155. Tim, let's talk about the plants you brought in. Okay. So... For those listeners who have got access to the Facebook page for the garden show, we've got some photos up there now. Or yes, no, up, they'll be they up there. will be going up soon. Um, so I've got four plants here. <clears throat> Two are 
widely available or generally widely available in the commercial marketplace. Um, the first one I'm going to talk about is an arm area, uh, an arm area, pseudo arm area. This is a cultivar called Sweet Dreams, and it comes from the series that are known as the Dream Area series. So if, um, if you're out and about in your garden centres, you will see these in flower at the moment. This, um, so this is the story behind this one, because we were talking earlier about plant breeders and who creates the plants. This is one that's created by the breeders, the breeding team at Plant Growers Australia, PGA, which is a Melbourne-based nursery. Uh, and this plant is available nationally and is soon to be available internationally as well. Okay. So this is some breeding that's coming from Australia and taking, taking the world by storm. Well, it's going to because it's really good. Yep. Uh, <laughs> so um, areas are a little, they're basically a, um, a perennial Ground cover, sort of low low foliage. The foliage itself is probably two inches tall and will spread. Uh, and the flowers are these little globular round flowers that sit on robust sort of quite stiff stems that are probably six to eight inches tall. They're uh, wonderful because the stems are so stiff that they really hold themselves they right up and they stand out of the well, foliage. well clear of the foliage. Yep, so the yep. foliage is only a couple of inches, and the and the flowers are sitting six or eight inches, you know, so four or five inches above the foliage. Mm. This one, this one, uh, Sweet Dreams, is a, a sort of a lilac soft pink. Mm. Um, and they flower, they, they kind of start, they, they can start flowering as early as oh, September. Okay. Uh, and will flower right the way through up till Christmas. And then, pros- and, and I've seen these actually repeat flower in autumn and go into winter. Wow, that's, but their, that's great. Their main flowering period is, is right now. Is this now. is, this yep. is right in its slot. Uh, and, they produce, so this is the one I'm looking at now has got one, two, three, four, four, about half a dozen flower heads on top and another. And lots of, yeah, lots and of buds, buds coming through. Yep. So the, um, they're, and they're like little globes. So they sit like, they dance like little globes. They're like little pom-poms almost. Yeah. On if people have ever grown chives, uh, yes. and seen a chive flower, which yes. is a little round, um, globey kind of, um, flower, it's similar in a way. And in fact, some comments from some of the Americans that see, seen these is that they would use them like an ornamental allium, which is the tribe. Yes, the, the chi- exactly. The tribe I instantly the thought allium when I first saw the yeah, plant. Yeah, but it's it actually much longer flowering than an allium yep. uh, and better behaved in terms of its foliage. Yeah, and of course the leaves are different. Yeah, and yep. the leaves are, are, are not sort of, they're not uh, uh, round and um, spiky. They're more sort of a flat leaf. Yep. So the they natural environment for these is sort of rockeries. Um, these have got a bit of um, coastal heritage in them too. Okay. So they can take So they'd some, stand up to they, salt winds? They can take some quite tough conditions. Yeah, okay. Um, so they look kind of soft and pretty, but they're actually but they're quite pretty tough. Hardy, yeah. Yeah, it's the sort of thing that you'd plant on a path edge or at the front of a border, perhaps with some salvias or some... Fantastic en masse. And en masse they look yes, wonderful. Brilliant. Two basic uses really is on mass and in, like I've just talked about it's a ground in garden cover. beds, ground yeah. cover, flowering ground cover, but also a terrific pot specimen too. Yep. So you, you can pop them on a patio pot um, and they look tremendous. So that's the armeria, pseudo armeria, but just remember the dream area is the, is the name. So you'll see these ones under the dream area name. Uh, and this one is called Sweet Dreams. There are a number of others. I think there's five or six in the series. Okay. So there's a white one. Uh, called Dream Clouds. There's a deeper sort of brick red one, uh, which is called Daydream. Uh, and there's another called Dream Boat. So they all have this dream element in the yep, name. Yep. So look out for those because I think that's a, a plant that 
has great prospect in people's gardens, long flowering, mm. showy the other Australian ones in bread. The series, do they are they much the same height and much the same in height? Yep. Yep. So they all come from the same breeding line. Yep. Uh, there are a couple that have. There's one called Big Dreams, which has got heads that are twice the size. Oh goodness. Uh, probably a bit taller. Yep. Uh, so the white one is much the same height as this. Yeah. Yeah. So they basically colour range from white, pink, lilac, sort of a brick red, and a deep pink. Uh, and they all look similar to this one. Fantastic. And yeah, so habit-wise, they're all similar to that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. so Aussie bread. Brilliant. Uh, my next one is another Australian bread one. We were talking earlier about David Glenn at, at, uh, at, Lamley. at Lamley up at Ascot. And what I was talking before about Ascot Rainbow, which is a variegated form of Euphorbia caracus. Um, so that is one that he's released maybe 10 years ago, mm. it's maybe not that long ago. Anyway, it's been on the market for quite a while. This is its little cousin. This is Ascot Lilliput. Okay. So looking at it here, it's basically covered in flower, Gosh, which, yes. which are effectively bracts in, in the euphorbia. So right now, for, for those of you who can picture euphorbias, they're a, um, sort of a waxy kind of leaf. This is, has a deep green. Um, and I think it's, I think it's actually one of the Martinii crosses, actually, in its heritage. <clears throat> um, and then you get the sort of lime green fol- uh, flower across the so top. So it's, it's a classic euphorbia form, isn't it? This is the sort of... The, You'd know the, instantly you're looking at yeah, a euphorbia. Yeah, especially now when it's in flower. Yes. And I think the great advantage with this is we're seeing it right now in peak flower. And those of you who look on the Facebook, you'll see it with covered in flower. But... Once the flower finishes on these, quick clip across the top, mm. and the foliage is really nice too. It's a nice deep green, sort of deep um, glaucous kind of green with a nice sort of mid-rib and reddish stems, and it makes a very tough ground cover for a sunny spot, uh, keeps its shape. Uh, it will take hot, hot sun. I mean, the, the spurges of the euphorbias are... Yep. Very happy in yep. our hot summer conditions. They don't require watering no. much. Get at this all. one established, and it will yep. it will grow its little to its little heart's content. Mm. Um, so this is a shorter form uh, with a with a, a clean green leaf. There's no variegation on this one. Uh, Ascot Lilliput. Uh, it's just been introduced onto the market this spring, so it's it's out there in a, at the moment. Um, there will be more supply in years to come. It's in its first year, so if you don't catch it this year. Keep your eye out for it. In future years, it's being propagated. We're building numbers on this one through yep. the network. Yep. Uh, but I think it's a really good one for uh, our hot, dry summers, mm. drought conditions. Looks green. I think the, the key to plants like this, and this is why this would make it into my garden, is because not only does it survive in the summer, but it looks really good. Yes. It's, it doesn't look... And green is cooling. Green is cooling, exactly. It, Go for evergreen plants that look good in the summer because they look so, they they make you feel better. Exactly. It, if and, and I use quite a few silver leaf plants in my garden. Well, but, again, but I can't they're, overdo they're them. Tough. No, because no. It, because if they're all silver, yeah, my garden will look like a ghost. You've lost it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's got to have that contrast. And deep greens and silvers work really well. Deep greens and greys. Yep. They're sort of grey greens. They're the sort of robust colours that mm. foliage colours that withstand the hot mm. summer. So. But again, this is um, an absolute mass of flowers um, in, in proportion to the, the leaf because a lot of you euphorbias um, will stretch will yeah. stretch, and they only have flowers at the top. Yep. So you don't have this same massed flowering effect. Yeah. So for any of you, any gardeners out there that are aware of euphorbia robiae, which is another species of euphorbia, this is, it, when it's in flower, it looks like this. 
But when when the flower's finished, this has the the more slender leaves yes. that I think are, are I guess give it a bit more class. I think it, it doesn't run away as much. It's, yes, it's a bit more architectural. Yep. Yeah. Yep. No, both both stunning plants and um, fantastic. Yeah. I so that's great uses for those. That's those two. We might just uh, go to a caller, Tim, and then we'll sure. get back to your other ones. But uh, we'll go next to Michael, who's out in Forest Hill. Good morning, Michael. Oh, good day. How are you going? We're well. Um, yeah, look, oh, look I'm just, in a way, I'm just raising a topic. Um, you probably heard it before. That, that, that a lot of the eucalypts around here are sort of reaching their maturity. Um, and I'm kind of interested in, um, in capturing um, and propagating some of the... Some of them, you know, um, obviously getting proper identification with it as well. But um, it's a, just a general sort of question um, and probably something that I'd, I'd be interested to hear from in the, in the future sort of thing. Okay. Um, well, you know, not the, yeah, I think no, you've got... The, yeah. Go, go on, go on. Sorry. Yeah. Um, yeah, go, go, go ahead. Well, yeah. I think that there are people, uh, there are... Um, local councils and yeah. and some private seed collectors that are yeah. collecting seed every summer uh, uh-huh. from from eucalypts and grasslands and uh, yeah. all across the Melbourne metropolitan area. But you have to have a permit. But you, I was going to say you have to have a permit. Uh, you have uh-huh. to you have to have a permit to collect, and you need to get permission from landholders if you're going onto public land. Sure, uh, sure. You can't collect from national parks. No, right, not even course. under yeah. permit. No, yeah. state yeah. parks. Uh, uh-huh. I don't think I don't think state parks either. I think it has to be on like roadside reserve yes, or council yes. land. Um, yes. So if you want to collect seed for commercial pr- um, uh, purposes, yeah, there are a few hoops to jump through. Yeah. But rest assured, there are people doing it. I know in a former workplace at Australian Ecosystems, uh-huh. a lot of the road reserves, Vic Roads, are very big on this. Yes. Oh, that's um, good. And yeah. like for instance, down at um, down in southeast Melbourne, Thompson's Road is right. one of those roads that's getting a big extension because it's now becoming quite a, a thoroughfare. Yeah. There was a big population of river red gums along yep. the roadside reserve. Yep. And uh, at Australian Ecosystems, Systems, we were commissioned to go in and collect a lot of seed mm. uh, ah. and put that into a seed bank and, ah, and go to, out to various propagators. Uh, so there are... And, and that was because they were knocking them down, actually. Yeah, yeah. And they were building the road, and then there is plant material to go back. In, That's right. In the in as part of the, the the landscape renewal and the design of the of that uh, redevelopment of the road. I know I know people who got permits to collect seed and propagate for revegetating along the the pipeline that, oh, yes. that went in. You know, with the D cell. And, yep. Yeah. So so there are people out there doing it. Yeah. There's, oh, that's good to know. Yeah. Look, I, I just I just hadn't done the research. I I just thought I'd. Yeah, just jump out of my seat and um, yeah, no, that's fair well, enough. Got to say. Yeah, yeah. And look, if you've got a, you know, if you've got a gum tree in your backyard, uh, yeah. and it's starting, and it'll, you'll see it flower, you'll see the bees all over it, and you'll see it yeah. then ripen its fruit. It's sure. actually not that hard to collect some seed from the yeah. as the seed as the the um, pods ripen up. Yep. Have a cry, have a have a go, yeah, have see a go what at you get. it. Exactly. Yeah, There's nothing cool. to stop you. Yeah. That's the case. I, I do have a beauty at the back here, and um, uh, you know it's getting getting on a bit. No, I don't. It's got to go eventually, I suppose. But I, you know, um, 
I, I, you know, I want to. Do you know which one it is? Sort of thing. I, no, I don't. I, I, I did have, I did have it identified at one point. I just can't remember what it is. Yeah, well, that's uh, probably your first step: is find out what it is. Yeah, maybe yeah. Hit, hit a few books and have a look. And, and, and yeah. the the markers will be leaf shape, flower, yeah. bark. And, sure. and the shape some, of the fruit. Sure. Send, take, yeah. some, take some photos on your phone and head up to somewhere like Karanga Native Nursery yeah. and they'll identify it for you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, I, I, yeah, I was, I was wanting to do that, yeah. Once again, it's just like it's just seizing, seizing the day sort of thing because, as, as you know, um, I, I, um, I don't know enough about them to know when, you know, when to sort of act sort of thing. It, um, if we get a bit of heat and all that sort of thing, it might, I might miss 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 the opportunity. Yep. I, I just wanted to get onto it right now. Sort of. Yeah, sure. Uh, well, I, yeah. I would strongly recommend, as I say, you go up and have a good chat up at Karanga yeah, yeah, because they, sure. they will be able to give you a lot of advice on, on um, cultivating and yeah, seed sure. sowing and all the rest of it. Yes, yes, yes. All right, look, I'll do that. Um, I'll get out of your way. Um, That's yeah, fine. Yeah, yeah. Okay. okay. All right. Okay. Good luck with it. See you, Michael. Cheers. Bye. Cheers. Bye. Uh, as I mentioned, you are listening to the 3CR Gardening Show. We are running through for another 15 minutes, so uh, if you want to jump on the line in the next 10 minutes and give us a call, we'd love to hear from you. That number, 94190155. Tim, you've got two more plants there. Oh, I do have two more plants. So in much the same way that David Glenn has two parts to his garden, yes, I have two parts to my garden, parts. too. Although well, not separated, <laughs> no, no, not but physically, <laughs> but in terms of my plant palette. So I've got two specimens here of some plants that I've been growing in my garden that I think are fascinating plants but are not very widely available. So these are more for the collectors out there, yep. for the hunters, yes. the plant hunters. Hunters and gatherers. <laughs> uh, the first is uh, the holly leaf, uh, holly leaf cherry. So this is uh, Prunus elissifolia. So this is a small tree. I've uh, been growing at my place for about five or six years. Uh, so in the cherry family, so... In, you know, so all the prunus, and there's many prunus out there, so yep. there's many flowering cherries. This has a distinctive uh, leathery holly leaf, uh, so it's got a really serrated margin, yes, which gives it very the holly name, the elissifolia. Elis means uh, elysia ilex, so it's similar to the ilex, which is the, the name for, uh, the botanical name for holly. This is a tree, or a small tree, that comes from California, the Californian coast. Okay. So I think they call it the chaparral, is the, the, the ecosystem where it comes from. All right. So we talked earlier about Mediterranean plants or, or climates, or plants growing from climates that are similar to ours. Uh, this is a classic. You know, mm -hmm. I think of Southern California or coastal California is very similar to our growing conditions in the Mediterranean parts of Australia. So I think this is a plant that has um, great potential. Very tight foliage, like the, the, the plant, mine is a single stem which is, yeah, like I said, five, about five or six metres tall. Um, it's growing relatively quickly. It has tiny little white flowers on it right now, which are little cherry blossoms, and it produces a red berry, which is about the size of a grape, maybe a bit smaller, but marble okay. size. Okay. Um, and it's, it is edible. Um, but I think you have to do some treatment for it first because it has some arsenic in the, in the right. seed. So yep. if anyone's out there, don't eat it straight away. Not no, on my no, advice anyway. No, no, not raw off the <laughs> no, bush. Not raw. <laughs> uh, it, it, it is edible, but it's used in dyes um, uh, and it's quite an ornamental looking fruit as well. Yep. This, this plant, I think, has potential to be a hedging plant uh, and I think is used in... So it would prune, okay. It would prune really well. The reports are, and I haven't pruned mine, although I can, I've tipped a couple of branches and I can see it bushing up back, back on, the, on the stem going inwards. 
But I have read that in the US, especially in California, where they're, where they're growing a native plant in ornamental gardens, that this is being clipped into, into formal hedges. Okay. Uh, and because it is so robust, so it'll take hot, dry conditions, uh, I think it's got potential as a plant. Mm. So that's the holly leaf cherry, Prunus elisifolia, uh, which you, I'm not sure if you can get it in Australia at the moment, um, but keep a lookout for it. Uh, okay. It might be one of the sort of things that you'd you'd ask at rare botanical fairs and. Does the foliage go down nice and low for yes. a hedge? Yeah, it would go all the way. All if, the if, way. If my, I've actually been Wonderful. training mine to a clear trunk because okay. I want to see a clear. You want I've to got see a bit more room. Yeah. yeah. Um, but I absolutely, if I clipped it earlier, it would hedge all the way to the ground. Fantastic. Yeah. yeah. What about the birds with the berries? Well, mine hasn't fruited yet. So oh, okay. I've got lots of flower this year. So, so how I'm, long have you had it for? It's about five or six years I've okay, had it. Okay, and it hasn't fruited yet. Yeah, but it's grown really well. Yep. Uh, and it's produced an abundance of flower this year. So I'm expecting I'll there get some fruit. There aren't male and female plants? No, no, it's prunus. So they're, yep, so it should yep. be fine. And I imagine it'll, I'm assuming it pollinates itself. Yep. I don't know, don't know that it needs a cross-pollinator. Okay. I'll know in, <laughs> You'll find in, in out six eventually. months' time. <laughs> and, and if it doesn't, then I'll call it a sterile form. Yep. It doesn't produce okay. fruit. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, so that's the, the holly leaf cherry, which, uh, yeah, uh, great for our Aussie climate. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm really surprised that it's not available in Australia because, I mean, I can see that this is going to be a really tough plant. Yeah, in our and summers. you can feel the leaf. You can feel well, the leaf. That really is but you leather, can, leather leaf. Yeah, it is leathery, so, so yeah, it's, it's so got it's that, that so that's the sort of drought resistance that it'll yeah, have. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, super robust. Okay. So maybe ask around for that one. Uh, the other one I've got, which is also a little bit of a rarity, although I do know this one is available, and I think you can get this th- um, through some of the, the more collectors type uh, growers. Okay. This is the dinner plate fig. Uh, so it's called Ficus demeropsis. Mm-hmm. The the picture that you'll see on the Facebook site, if you have a look, is of a very small leaf. Actually, this is and if. If you look at it, it's actually... Well, it's still it's, big. It's twice the, the size, <laughs> probably three times the size of my hand, and this yeah, is a yeah, small yeah. leaf. And that's... A, wow. The leaf can get up to a metre long wow. and up to sort of 40 or 50 centimetres, perhaps even a little bit wider. Okay. So it's a, it's a... So you can imagine with a big surface area like that, it's not one that, that loves the hot and dry. This is not... No. This one is not uh, a, for the Mediterranean climates. It actually comes from Papua New Guinea. Okay. Uh, so it grows on stream sides and up yep. at altitude in Papua New Guinea. Yep. So it can take a bit of cold, which is good for us. So it, it'll take, I get down to, oh, I would probably get close to a frost, but not quite a frost. And I've planted it in quite a protected spot. Um, but it has these amazingly big leaves. I mean, if you think, if you think of the, I guess, the current trend around indoor plants, which is around foliage, yes, this would be right in the wheelhouse of people that are in, into those kind of plants because it is massive foliage, very tropical looking, uh, and it's a fig. So it's, it gets uh, fig-like fruit. They're, they're big fruit that grow in the axils of the, of the leaves, right. um, which are purportedly edible because it's also known as, as the large leaf breadfruit. Okay, um, but okay. I haven't eaten mine, and the reports I've read are that they're a bit scabby. So I'm probably I'll probably eat the fig from my other from yes, my brown turkey down the yes, way exactly. rather than this one. <laughs> this one is really for its striking uh, foliage, and it's a stunning plant. Produces leaves. It just grows and grows. It's a good plant. They're, How tall does it get? Uh, they will get quite tall. Um, probably or not super tall. They'll probably get to about 
oh, four or five metres, okay. maybe a little bit more, and they'll spread out. There are a couple of great specimens in the Botanic Gardens in Melbourne, right? Uh, down by the lake. Uh, yep. I'm just trying to picture where they are. They're sort of on the on the western side of the lake, if I can remember. So there's a couple of good specimens there. And I got mine through your minor rare plants, right. uh, which is up in Monbok. Yep. Uh, your minor online. Have a look out for Peter Tease. I think he's probably got some that he's propagating. It doesn't propagate very easily, uh, or you don't get a lot of material from cuttings. Mm. So it's not on, on in big numbers. Okay. But that one is around a bit. Ficus yep. damaropsis. I was thinking because it's got such a tropical look to it, if you, if you had the right position um, around a swimming pool or something, if you're wanting that lush tropical yeah. look, it would be fantastic. It, it, it really does look like a sort of a palm tree. Almost. Yeah, so yeah, uh, exactly. Well, it's got big, leafy, massive leaves that give it that real luxurious tropical look. Um, yeah, you'd, probably not in, in a heap of full sun. I'd... I noticed no. in some of the books yep. it says that in New Guinea it's in full sun, but I don't think in Melbourne in full sun. It's no. not going to take a 40-degree day with yep. a hot wind. It's going to scorch quite badly. Yep. So mine's yep. in quite a protected spot. Yeah, okay. Mm. So you give that a reasonable amount of water? Yeah, it, it, that one doesn't dry out. I don't let that one dry out. I've got a little spot on a south-facing nook where I've got a couple of other bits and pieces that I mollycoddled a bit. So that's, yep. that's in mollycoddle that's land, in that you. one. <laughs> It's not quite the nursery, but... <laughs> no, it's it, it just, it's, it's, yeah, it's yeah. extra attention. The TLC. The section. TLC corner, it's yeah. right, yeah. yeah. Fantastic. Okay, yeah, um, amazing plants, though. Yeah, I think, yeah, I think, I think the thing with plants and, and even the four that I've got in front of me here that we've talked about, there's such a diversity. Mm. Um, and, and that's just in one garden. You don't have to have a garden all of the same plants. You can find bits and pieces. Even this ficus damaropsis, would work as an indoor plant, and uh, and it would be well, quite for a, a spe- time. <laughs> for for a time. But a lot of indoor plants, you can do that. You can take them in and out. You know, this I could take this in for winter and take it out in summer. Yeah, sure. But there is a real demand and a real trend around big foliage oh, indoor plants, and absolutely. a lot of the urban jungle is is taking over. It's a lot it of is. houses out there that have got foliage everywhere, more foliage than than, well, than wall paint. Well, so many people are now living in, in apartments. Yeah. They don't have much land to have a garden, but so they've gone indoors. Yeah, and they're looking for something a bit more exotic. Yes. Uh, I think um, and, and, and there's a whole heap of plant material out there now that's new to someone like me who's been in this game for 25 years mm. because it's indoors. My collection is outside, but I'm starting to find a few things to bring inside now. And, yep. this, and that's being led by a new generation of gardeners who are, who are coming indoors and then going out. Yes. So I, I hope that as time goes on and their houses get, they're not in a flat, maybe they go to a slightly bigger house, their garden gets bigger <laughs> as well. Out onto the balcony. Out onto the balcony and, and yes. the next door neighbour yes. or, or maybe the local school. Yeah, or yeah, yeah. Nature strip. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I refuse to call it a verge. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we'll I'm good. not into that, but uh, <laughs> anyway. Okay, Tim, we've got uh, another call we must get to. We're going to uh, Wendy, who's in Vermont South. Good morning, Wendy. Oh, good morning, everyone. And I'm sorry to call so late. Uh, a quick That's question fine. about um, a sacred bamboo. I'm trying to get rid of a, a clump of it. There's nothing else around it. I've cut it down to ground level, but as you can imagine, there's lots of little bits of cane all sticking up in the ground now. Um, if I poison each of those little canes with Roundup, um, I'm presuming there'll be still bits to come up. What's the best way to deal with this? Is, is it worth digging at all? Uh, okay, so so for everyone out there, a sacred bamboo would also be known as a nandina, and there's a number of different nandinas out there. 
Um, I think, Wendy, look, there's probably a couple of ways. If it's a single clump and it hasn't run away everywhere, you could actually dig it out. It has run away a bit. It's at least a square metre, maybe a bit yeah. more. Yeah, okay. So my, approach, my first approach would always be to do it without resorting to herbicide. Um, yeah. So I would dig out as much as I can. All right, yeah. Um, and that might just take a bit of effort and you'll get most of it. it, it if you dig out most of it, it will not... It might, you might get the odd one that comes back. But, but you, it, you're but weakening the plant yeah, for a start. You're going gonna to get 90% of the way there. Yeah, and then you just have a second go. And yeah, and I, and I think you could achieve that um, mm. with a little bit of um, elbow grease. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If, oh, my brother's visiting today. He doesn't know oh, it yet. Oh, there you oh, go. Good. Have you got a mattock for him? Just leave it next to it. <laughs> yeah, okay. An okay. automatic. And so then... All right, and then when the bits, what about when the new bits then come up again? Well, then, then once you've got the main clump out, then you can get a little, a, a small spade or a trowel or a small fork, and you could just get those out as they come. Okay, okay. Um, All yeah. right. That's terrific, guy. Oh, and another thing, if anyone wants to get rid of possums, and you probably know this, I've just uh, chopped up heaps and heaps of garlic, I don't know, two whole cloves, um, soaked it in a couple of litres of water, uh, strained it. Tell you what, it's brilliant. Possums keeping my leaving my roses away. It's brilliant. And you'll have no vampires either. Oh yes, of course. <laughs> yep, there we go. Thank you guys. I'm very grateful. Okay, good on you. Bye. Thank you. Bye. And we've had a quick uh, uh, query from Priscilla uh, in East Malvern. Um, she wants to know where you can buy your uh, your in PMA most, plants. Yeah, you can get them in pretty much all independent garden outlets. In You'll get them in the box nurseries. stores as well, in nurseries. Yeah, the the dromerias are everywhere at the moment. Uh, the little ascot lily put is available, but it might not be everywhere at the moment. So, um, but it will be coming, and there are plenty of other euphorbias in that in that range. In that like, range, like yep. the ascot rainbow, you'll see everywhere right yes. now. So, so they, they, those two are not challenging to find they yep. should be out and about in the major chains yep brilliant um can we just quickly put on one of your other hats one of your many hats <laughs> hang um, on where is it oh, there it is. <laughs> uh victorian schools garden awards um all the entries all done in. and we've done all the our judging done yes uh and we have our award ceremony i think it's on the 15th of november in the melbourne botanic gardens uh so i can't can't you tell can't, you who's no, won no, no, yet. No, no, I won't. I won't ask that. But we had a record. Oh, not a record, but we had a, more than last year's entrance this year. Oh, that's year good. That's to great. 150 entries across, I think, eight different categories. Great. Uh, so yeah, good, good entrance. Um, and yeah, I think it, look, it's such a great scheme that 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 people can at schools who've got gardens they want to celebrate. And there are a number of categories you can enter. There's sustainability, there's engagement, there's uh, there's even a turf award. There's there's lots of different awards in there. There's an orchard award. There's, there's, yep. there's lots and lots of things. So yep. if you're interested in that and you're working in the education sector, jump on the, the website, which is the Victorian School Garden Awards website, uh, and you'll get all the info there. Mm. And getting if, if you haven't got a school garden, there's so much information. And, of course, uh, Victorian Schools Garden Awards also run workshops. Yep. Um, to help you get started if you have no idea or if you want to get started but you don't know how to incorporate yeah. it into the curriculum. Yeah. There's so much information out there now. Yeah, we run, I think, four different workshop sessions across the year yeah. uh, and some in regional Victoria, some in Melbourne. We do one in conjunction with the Melbourne International, International Flower and Garden, Garden Show. Show. Yes. Uh, so all of those are there and they're really useful days to mingle with other uh, garden teachers as well, or people who are into garden and kitchen garden. Absolutely. Uh, sharing ideas as well as getting some expertise. Yep, yep. 
Tim, we've run out of time for uh, yet another week. Uh, goodness me, um, a big thank you to you for coming in, um, manning the studio, um, and also a huge thank you to Liz, who's had to handle all the phone calls this morning. We will, of course, uh, be back at 7.30 next Sunday morning. We'd love you to join us. Until then, bye for now. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.